Hi everyone. It's good to be with you all um, again uh, this evening or this afternoon. It's awesome how it's still light, you know. Maybe one day we can do a service here with the blinds up, you know. Let God turn the lights down. Hey, I want to tell you uh, about a song. It's a, it's a song about two cities. And so I'm going to, there's a nice aisle down here. So I'm going to divide you guys into these two cities. So over here, this is, this is you guys. This is a, you, you're a part of a city and this is a city of wonder, okay? Of power, supremacy. It's the type of city that draws your attention. It invites you in and you, to look and admire. This is the city that you belong to. So it's alive with colors and music and flavors. Entertainment lives in this city. It's a place where things get done, where business is made and opportunities abound. In other words, if you live in this city, you have a chance, okay? If you live in this city, you have a future. If you live in this city, your life is safe. And in fact, this represents who you are. Let me say this, this jar of gold is perhaps a, a picture of what this city is about. Actually, I would argue that uh, it's better than gold. It's actually chocolate. And um, we can have some of that later. The second city, you guys over here. This is, this is the city that is unpleasant. It's ugly. It's weak. This city lacks meaning and it might as well not exist. I'm sorry. This city doesn't draw you in. It compels you to move on. It has no culture, no creativity. There are no dreams in this city. Nothing happens in this city, okay? Humiliation lives in this city. This place doesn't exist for productivity. It exists for survival, all right? And so you have very little to live for in this city. There's no future in this city. Your life is at risk in this city. And you guys are represented by ashes. <laughs> so this is, this is a song that is meaningful, okay, but it's very short. And um, it's poetic. It's full of imagery. It's emotional. It's an important song because it sits between the gaps. So it sits in the gap between this over here and this over here. Between the joy and the aspirations and the momentum of this city and the ashes and the disorientation and the calamity of this other city um, rests all kinds of emotions and prayers. And so this is the space where the song sits. It doesn't ever try to resolve the tension of what it's describing. It simply verbalizes what it sees and then it waits. And so I'm going to read the lyrics to this song. And it simply begins by a number, and it's called Psalm 137. This is where we pick up um, these words. And it says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of these songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. 
If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. So this is really a song about two cities and these cities aren't equal. The second city should have enjoyed everything. This city should have enjoyed everything that this city um, was living for, that experienced. Worse still, the first city, this one over here, had overthrown the other. One city had expanded at the cost of the other. This is the song about Babylon and about Jerusalem. So I want to make two brief observations about this psalm. And then I'll expand on on a third point. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to is the fact that unlike any other psalm, so there's 150 in in our Bible, unlike any other psalm, this psalm refers to a particular time and place. This doesn't happen anywhere else. We can have guesses as to where the context of the psalms were written, but this one is very specific and we can name the place and the time where it happened. So in Uh, 587 BC, there was a king of Babylon. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, he destroyed Jerusalem and its temple. Uh, Prophets had spoken about this, but it was Jeremiah who not only spoke on God's behalf, but had the terrible uh, opportunity, if you like, to experience it and see the destruction of Jerusalem. And so the majority of the Israelites were taken into exile and in fact, there wasn't one exile, there was, there was uh, three. And the um, Babylonians came through in the first wave of attacks and they took the cream of the crop, if you like. They took the, the best that Jerusalem or the Israel culture had to offer and included men and women. And one of those would have been a young man by the name of Daniel, the prophet Daniel. And so Daniel, along with maybe other nobles and other Um, uh, really handsome young men and women would have been trained up to serve in the Babylonian court. And so if you look at the Hebrew canon, so the Hebrew Bible, if you look at the placement of the books of the Bible in the Old Testament, Daniel doesn't live in the same place that it does in our canon. The reason is because Daniel is not necessarily technically considered a prophet because he didn't prophesy Um, with Israel in mind. The dreams and the prophetic messages that he had were for the king Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. So technically, he's placed in another place in the Hebrew canon. In ours, he's placed with the three other major prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is another prophet that went uh, in the second wave of attacks, and Daniel was already there. And Jeremiah was the one that got left behind. It was the third wave. King Nebuchadnezzar had enough He destroyed everything and left the poor people, the peasants, those that were of no use to him whatsoever. And Jeremiah was one of those. So this psalm was written sometime after the return to Jerusalem from exile. So they've had time to process this. They've had time to consider what their story has been about. And Jeremiah was the one that prophesied that the exile would last 70 years you're going to be swept away and you're going to be taken to a foreign land 
and it's going to last for 70 years. So this psalm happens or is written after this time. The second point that I want to draw your attention to is the fact that this is classed as a problem psalm. It's a difficult psalm. Psalm 137 shares the stage with two other psalms, uh, psalms that are described as problem psalms or problematic. And these are called uh, problematic psalms because they don't fit neatly into any categories. Now, over the years, there's been lots of uh, theologians and scholars that have tried to somehow put labels to all of these different psalms. You might have someone like Gunkel or a man by the name of Mo Winkle or someone like Walter Brueggemann, who's still alive today. And they've tried to describe how the psalms should be read. And so early on, the psalms were put into different categories. You had laments, uh, you have kingship psalms, you had creation psalms, and they're trying to put these labels on all of those things. It's not bad, it's just a way to engage in the, in the content and trying to describe what we're seeing. But... Uh, there were these psalms that you can't put anywhere, and so the label that we give them is problem psalms. One of those being Psalm 88. Psalm 88 doesn't end well. Psalm 88 is, uh, talks about God's absence or his silence. The other psalm is 109, and this is all about vindictiveness uh, toward others who have violated the person that wrote the psalm. And then we've got our third psalm here, 137. So let's just pick this apart a little bit. Psalm 137 has one of the most famous opening lines. When I started reading, did you start thinking about that song, By the Rivers of Babylon? Only the older people are nodding. All you young'uns, you don't have to listen to the song, but you can YouTube, Boney M, By the Rivers of Babylon. There you go. So this song is, is playing in your head. But not only is it one of the most famous opening lines, it's also one of the most violent closing lines in the psalm. And I'll come to that in a later uh, later on. And so it's a psalm that stirs up anger as the writer is remembering what the enemy had done to Jerusalem and ultimately to God's temple and to his, uh, the people that he's a part of. So it doesn't end well. It's not drawing his thoughts to a logical conclusion. Instead, the author leaves us hanging, okay, leaves the idea out there. And so that brings me to the third point. The first one, that it's a time and place. So not every psalm does this, but this one does. The second one is that it's a problematic psalm. And then the third point that I want to expand on more is that it's dealing with imprecation. We don't use that word very often, but um, it starts with a lament. Let's go to the first three verses. If we could have the screen for those first three verses, um, that slide, that would be helpful. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. When we remembered Zion, Zion is, is another name for um, God's presence, God's people uh, and his presence in the temple. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. That's the lament, that's the complaint. And then we get the next few verses, 4 through to 7. How can we sing the song of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So this is the city that should have been Babylon-esque. Israel, Jerusalem, should have looked like this. 
Jerusalem should have been the envy of all other nations, not because it was the biggest or the best, but because God's presence was there. And you, you think back to um, uh, God calling Abram and saying, I want to I take you on a, on a journey. I want you to leave your land and I'm going to multiply your descendants. I'm going to create a nation out of you in order to demonstrate what a relationship with God looks like. All the other nations are going to look differently to you. Trust me in this. This is what God was saying. And so Jerusalem's temple was the epitome of this presence. You know the story. Um, the, the Israelites didn't have land yet. They were wandering in the desert. They finally come to the land that God had promised them. And the, the tabernacle or the, the, the Ark of the Covenant representing the, the presence finally came to rest in Jerusalem. And the idea of the temple was part of uh, Israel's great story in the Golden Age with Saul, King Saul and King David and King Solomon. This was the Golden Age of um, Israel and Jerusalem. But instead, instead of all these things that should have been that, they experienced exile. They experienced humiliation. They experienced ash, dirt, everything that they'd built, uh, everything that they'd constructed or built for God was suddenly not there anymore. So no wonder that for the Jewish community, this song was about a longing for home, a longing to return to what they knew beforehand. And so the author is angry. When he writes these words, he is angry. He is annoyed that this has happened to his people. How could this be? To the point that he wishes the destructions of his enemies. And this is where we come to these next three verses from 7 to 9. So his conversation then turns to God. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. The Edomites were a smaller nation that partnered, if you like, with the Babylonians. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Door to Babylon, doomed to distraction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Now, this is perhaps the elephant in the room. Let me speak into this for just a second. Um, this is possibly, uh, it's a very violent image, and it's possibly... Uh, got to do a lot more with, um, say, an army tactic. When you think about um, the idea of destroying uh, the little babies like this means that there is no cost to weapons. Um, it's efficient, and you not only guarantee victory there and then, you guarantee victory for generations to come. And it's quite likely that he's wishing upon the Babylonians what the Babylonians had done to Israel. So he's verbalising... Um, the, the, the thing that they had experienced themselves. So it's very violent. And we'll come to what God may um, speak into this later on. And so this is what imprecation sounds like. It's the psalm, it's the singer invoking the wrath of God upon his enemy. In this case, it was Babylon. So imprecation is not unique to this psalm. It happens in other places. You go to Psalm 12, 58, 83, 139, for example. There is imprecatory language in these psalms. Here's a little disclaimer. We need to understand the Jewishness of this psalm. Or at the very least, we need to be aware of our non-Jewishness when we read the psalm. Do you know what I mean by that? We are not part of that 
Jewish culture or tradition. For us, the idea of exile is quite foreign. Sure, we could get some, some friends of ours that um, could tell us uh, some stories about maybe their experiences of um, maybe fleeing their country and find a new home here in Australia. But really, when it comes to this psalm and the total destruction of God's temple and the city of Jerusalem is really a concept that's quite foreign to us. And so there is distance there and we need to be aware of that. But what about anger? Okay, so I'm not Jewish, but do I get angry? You betcha I do. And actually, I think you get angry too. So this is where the psalm starts to hit closer to home. It's not so much about our Jewishness or exile or destruction. It's really about anger. What are you going to do about the anger that you feel at times? So I'm not talking about getting angry at your kids uh, for not being able to find their shoes when it's time to go out the door. And I'm not really talking about the anger that you feel when you're, you're driving a car and someone cuts you off. Uh, I'm talking about anger at, that's it's a much deeper thing. That's just little annoying things. The anger that I'm talking about is anger at injustice. Anger at a situation of helplessness. It's anger uh, or humiliation that has caused you pain. But it's not only me that experiences this, it's perhaps anger that you feel right now on behalf of somebody else. At an injustice that another person or another group of people are experiencing. It's an anger that's been burning in you, in your heart for a long period of time. And so um, I've experienced this in one tangible way in my life and it's not appropriate to tell you about this here. Um, but it's really got to do with uh, the um, uh, feeling uh, of injustice, especially to the people that I loved. Going through some experiences that were very unpleasant. Not so much to me, I was involved because I was the, I was the um, part of the family, but it's really pain that I could see in the lives of, of those that I loved. And really it was oppressive as of, uh, oppressiveness on a spiritual level. It was almost spiritual abuse, I would call it. And that's the anger that I experienced and didn't know how to process or didn't know how to do well. And so Psalm 137 reminds us that um, we have a primitive or an instinctive human desire for revenge when we or those we care about have been wronged, okay? And so maybe you're angry at God right now because of something very specific. This is the point of the psalm. It's an attempt to suppress the primitive human lust for violence in one's own heart by surrendering everything to God. That's the invitation of this psalm. But it's not just a God who is loving, it's actually also a God who is just and a God who is holy. In other words, it doesn't allow for you to be left to your own devices. Let me say that again. This psalm reminds us that you don't have the permission to be left to your own devices, to pursue that revenge that you may be looking for. So the capacity to leave vengeance to God is Israel's opportunity to dig her heels in and to hold on to hope for what was yet to come. And so Israel's preoccupation with vengeance, instead of giving it over to God, could have left her with no energy for hope. But thankfully that's not what happened. 
The reason Israel could hang on to hope for New Jerusalem for so long was because she had learned to turn this desire for vengeance to God. So much so that they would put it in song form. So much so that we have a record still of it today. And so notice how the speaker does not take action with the words he's spoken. He didn't just verbalize these words and then go out and execute all these babies. The speaker does not, in fact, crush the heads of babies against rocks. It's a prayer. It's a, it's a wish. It's a hope. It's a yearning. But the venom of this desire is left in God's hands. There's a dual role in the relationship. Israel is the one who hopes, and Yahweh is the one who avenges as he chooses. And so God is not asking us to suppress these emotions. He invites us to speak about them in uh, plain terms. By doing this, we give voice to the pain, the feelings of helplessness, our burning anger. Speaking these out to God means that we are giving them over to him, trusting that his justice and his um, hope, his holiness would come into the picture. So here's another way of putting it. I can pray whatever I need to pray and God can take it. You can use whatever words you want to use. You can yell it out if that makes you feel comfortable. And God can take it. Why? Because I can trust him not to do what is wrong, no matter how sincerely I ask him. Do you get that? I can trust him to do everything that is right, regardless of how I'm feeling, regardless of my anger. And that's the beauty of this psalm. That's where this gap, this is where we're sitting right now. That is the wonderful thing of having a relationship with God. No matter how angry I feel, I can trust him to do what he needs to do that is right. And I can trust him to take the words that I'm going to give to him, that I'm going to throw his way at the things that I'm seeing. And so, friends, the reality of, um, for us is that we don't live in the paradigm of two cities. That was just the introduction. What I'm really getting at is that we live in two kingdoms. And so the one kingdom, this kingdom over here, appears to offer everything you need in life. But it doesn't take long to discover that this kingdom is really ruled by darkness and evil. This is the kingdom of confusion and chaos, of insecurity and threats. This is the kingdom where anger and vengeance is in your hands to do whatever it is that you want to do. And so death lives in this kingdom. And really, at the end of the day, this is what that kingdom looks like. But I want to tell you about another kingdom. This kingdom is understated. It seeks no glory for itself, but chooses to serve um, the world. The kingdom, this kingdom is ruled by light. This is the kingdom of second chances, of faith in the things that can't be seen. It's the kingdom of hope for what is yet to come. So in this kingdom, the cities are reversed. The weak become the strong. The blind see. The lame walk. The one who cries out will cry no more. The fatherless will come home. 
It requires servant leadership in this kingdom. It requires suffering service in this kingdom. This is the kingdom where anger is expressed to God, but trust in his holiness and justice override my heart's burning desire for revenge. That's the kingdom I want to be a part of. This kingdom is real and is possible to live in because Jesus is its king. Notice how the kingdoms have reversed. Jesus is the king of a kingdom that is far different to what the world offers. And Jesus is king because he's the one that was dashed across the rocks. God's baby, if you like. His son was the one who died in order that his justice would be fulfilled. Jesus makes possible a better way to live, a better way to deal with our broken world, but it's not found in my own strength and ability to do so. It rests with Jesus. It's his ability to do so. Bonhoeffer said this, I can't forgive my enemies out of my own resources. Only the crucified Christ can do that, and I through him. And I think he knew that secret to this kingdom living. So I think God is saying, be angry. It's okay. If you see something that you're not happy with, whether it's in your life or in the lives of the people around you, be angry, God is saying. Injustice, oppression, helplessness and hopelessness are wrong. Be angry, but place all of these emotions before God. Verbalizing, verbalize them. Try and put words to them, name them, write them down. And I'm a big fan of writing it down. I don't know what you do in terms of um, what, we, what we talk about here at Door of Hope is like 20 minutes in the chair, to just to remind ourselves that on a daily basis, we want to connect with God. And uh, we do so by reading the Bible. Uh, it's, it's the greatest source that we have available that describes who God is and how we see ourselves. And so we want to spend time with God reading the Bible, but we also want to pray. And I would suggest that for uh, a lot of us, we would do well to write some things down. Grab a, a journal, a piece of paper, something that you can come back to is my point. It doesn't have to be paper. You can use your phone if you want. I'm a big fan because what can happen is that you can go back to reading the things that you verbalized and actually see God has worked in your life. It's like a psalm. It's actually coming before uh, the Lord, writing it down, and actually coming back to it in, in maybe a month's time or what a, a year's time, and actually reading those words and going, wow, I didn't realize I was that angry, or I didn't realize that God really helped me through that time. So I'm a big fan of writing it down, of journaling, and I would encourage you to consider doing that as well. How about I pray? So Father, we... Uh, want to come before you and we've already said this tonight that we want to make you our king and uh, I think we gather every week because we need that reminder in our lives uh, we're easily distracted by the way we feel towards something and uh, engaging with the world in such a way that um, is counterintuitive to your kingdom and so Lord we need each other we need to be reminded I need to read your Bible I need to pray I need to write things down to be reminded that you are indeed king. And living in your kingdom, Lord, is all about 
just handing things over to you and saying, you rule the way you want to see it. And so, Lord, you invite me, you invite us to live in this kingdom that you instilled and you invite us to um, see the pain in our world and you invite us to engage with it and to respond. And so you choose me, you choose us to verbalize what we see and to commit it to you in prayer. Lord, we pray for uh, my friends here tonight. Maybe there's some people that are experiencing some anger in certain issues very specifically. Maybe it's at school or at college. Maybe it's uh, interaction with other students. Maybe it's an issue at work. Maybe it's an issue at home that's, draw, that's um, causing a lot of pain. Lord, take our anger. May we be able to verbalize it so that we can see your hand at work. Thanks that your kingdom is here and it's now. And you invite me to be Jesus to others. And you invite us to be Jesus to the, our world around us. And it's a privilege to be able to do this. So thank you, Lord, for this psalm. Thank you that it's an example of just how we can interact with you. Our living God, we say thank you for uh, an opportunity to talk with you and to worship you like we've done tonight. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.